Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. Finally, World Superbikes is back in action and that also means finally Gordon Ritchie's back on the podcast. And El Gordo, wasn't a bad weekend to get started with. Oh, fantastic. Uh, as weird as you like with no fans and a relatively quiet paddock, no guests. But the racing was fantastic. It really was. And, and unpredictable, even though we had two big Scott Redding wins. We weren't quite sure what was going to happen. It looked like he would do the same in the short race and then Ray won. It was... We didn't really quite know who was going to be up next. There was all sorts of stuff going on that I don't think even the most optimistic people would have imagined would have happened with some of the riders that put in good performances. Yeah, it was a bit like that as well. Like my big takeaway was we had three manufacturers up at the front all the way through the weekend. We had lots of different riders, a group of seven really, that all felt like they had good bikes underneath them. So it looks like Phillip Island wasn't just the wild card of Phillip Island. It looks like 2020 is going to be a really strong season. Yeah, um, and we've, we've had a few false dawns in the last few years, but if we can do the same here in these extreme conditions uh, to a lesser degree, Phillip Island is always a slight exception. But unpredictability is the thing that I took away from this weekend uh, in terms of what people were going to do from Friday to Sunday. Uh, some people had bad Fridays and better Sundays and vice versa. There was technical issues that intervened. And Gordo, over the weekend, we did see, as you said, that uh, Scott Redding, Jonathan Ray, it's been the battle that's been talked about potentially all the way through the lockdown, all the way through last winter. And from the Super Bowl session onwards, saw the two, two riders just completely going at it. And uh, both of them in the Super Bowl session able to show their best potential. But when we got to the races, we didn't really get to see the best of Johnny during the course of the feature races. Kawasaki just struggling a little bit in the heat. Not quite as strong as the Ducati, but then in the Super Bowl race, the slightly cooler temperatures, Ray able to pick up the win. Yes, um, and I think it was uh, partially the shortness of the race that the tyre issues didn't raise their head as badly as they could have done, uh, or the grip issues. Um, I think the first race was ultimately just the setup wasn't right. Uh, and, they, and as Jonathan said in his uh, post-race interview, this was the race that he actually feared the most in a rescheduled season. Uh, in the second race, he did seem to have a more profound issue which is why he couldn't fight uh, when other riders came past him. Just uh, for for me, race one for Johnny was one of the best races we've seen from him because you could see how difficult it was going to be for the Kawasaki's. Cortese, Fares, Lowe's, a long way behind Ray during the course of that race. Yes. And then suddenly in race two, when Johnny couldn't control the race from the front, do you think is that where maybe the, the issues that he had just surprised him a little bit? I think he had more of an issue in race two. He wasn't expecting. He, had, he said he chose the same tyre uh, as he did in the, the long first race, but it just didn't give the, the grip and push that he expected it to. So I think there was something else at play there. In race two, his pace was broadly similar to what he had done the day before. But obviously, like I said, the strategy is very different. So do you think was it a tyre issue or was it just an issue that's always been there through the weekend for the car? I think in the second race there was someone else at play other than what was happening in race one and their general pace at this this race, which in these temperatures was difficult. And the, the irony for Kawasaki is in the cooler temperatures here, they've set incredible times, they can do very long lap runs and testing. We've seen how potent they are, but I think the temperature was the main problem to deal with. Uh, I think obviously they didn't get or couldn't get the bike and the package to work the way they really wanted it to. But I think there was definitely a, a, a some kind of external problem that Jonathan wouldn't pin down completely uh, in race two compared to race one when everything else was the same except for one or two clicks 
one or two small changes. So something else was happening in race two, and that's why you really couldn't go. Because in race one, we saw he was the only Kawasaki rider that could really uh, make the pace and stay there and, and, and have a have a go and, and get on a strong podium. Yeah, for me, this was always going to be a tough weekend. Whenever the new calendar came out, it certainly looked to me that uh, Johnny, over the course of this season, is going to have it tough just because Hareth in March would have been one of his best tracks of the year. Cooler temperatures, we know what the Kawasaki can do here. The hotter temperatures have always been an issue. But then whenever you lose Assen, when you lose Qatar, when you lose Imola, it's going to be tough for Johnny this year. It is, um, because he's losing some of his best tracks. However, we're going to Portimao next, and he loves that. Uh, we There are other tracks that he can he can go well at, but if we take him at his word, then we have to, because he's, you know, he's always that way. Uh, I think it, this might have been his worst the worst one that they knew they would struggle at, no matter what they did, it might be tough in these temperatures. Everywhere else, we'll see. But yes, he's lost a lot of his his favourite, as it were, or the bike's favourite tracks. Um, it's just going to be tough for everybody because it's in the intensity of it as well. But it's certainly not... Someone like Johnny plays a strategic game the full season long, from the beginning to the middle to the end. And now the begin- there's going to be a beginning, middle and end all coming on quite quickly. Uh, in different weather and who knows when we get to Magna Cour it could be freezing cold you know it's the way it is you, you said there about Johnny playing the long game all the way through the season he never looks at it as oh I did this in race one I did this in race two did this in the Super Bowl race he looks at it in round two I came here 19 points behind I've left here 24 points behind so it's actually not that bad considering that Scott Redding's won two races yeah and I think that they were actually relieved both Kawasaki riders, but particularly Jonathan, uh, and, and the guy won a race. I mean, you know, it's easy to look at it as, as some disaster because Jonathan finished sixth in race two, which is, you know, normally there's either, if, if, he, if he's a bad score, it's either a crash or some kind of technical issue. Occasionally this happens to everybody. Uh, but to finish sixth in a race is very unusual, which shows you how good they are at getting the bike to work, how good Johnny is. We know this. But um, I, I think that the, the, they just had issues this weekend they couldn't quite deal with and that was the, the, the bottom line yeah sixth is Johnny's worst ever result at Hareth which I think puts into perspective just how good of a job he's done over the years and it's not as if Hareth's an outlier he does that at every track and what actually Alex Lowe said yesterday says what one of the things that makes Johnny so good is that he always gets the, 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 the best result possible um, no matter what's happening so if, bite, if he can't win he'll get second if he can't be second he'll get third um, and the best he could probably do on, on Sunday's long race was, was sixth. So he was actually getting praise for finishing sixth, whereas people from outside who aren't as intimate with the issues were going, what? So it's, you know, Johnny's a machine. He's a winning machine. Uh, look at the five titles. Um, he's still the guy you beat. Reading is such a fantastic uh, addition to the championship, and obviously he's going to be one of the absolutely... Uh, top guys all year it looks like now I can't see any reason why he won't be there every single weekend I just don't see why with his experience not of superbike but of racing which is what really counts um, but Johnny Johnny sh- showed that even in a bad weekend he can still be there Scott's shown at all the races he's been to so far that he's, he's truly competitive that might be our final head to head for the season but don't write off those because, again, he had a bad weekend, but he improved in every single race. They got better as he got to know the bike better in his conditions. 
Yeah, well, um, I want to talk about Scott Redding, obviously, but we'll just finish off on the Kawasaki sense. Well, you mentioned Lowe's performance this weekend. They were in a pretty big hole coming into the weekend. And when you look at Saturday's result, real struggle for them. They used the harder front tyre, and uh, that was the tyre that Lowe's always used in the hot conditions on a Yamaha, but you know couldn't make it work on the Kawasaki. And then suddenly made changes for the races on Sunday. And brave decisions as well, like to use the SEX tyre on the rear, in 65 degrees track temperature you know it's very counterintuitive but he wanted to have grip and he wanted to make it work and he rode around having to manage that tire the whole way and and rode a very good race on sunday i think his maturity improves all the time for such an experienced rider he's still learning a lot um he's got a whole new thing to learn this year um the bike has strong points and weak points like every other bike and i think they found that some of the weak points this weekend but well, as you say, the team have managed those issues better and better as the weekend get on. That is the best sign for Lowe's, not the fact that he's, you look at your results and think, mm, you know, compared to Australia, and some people might be sitting at home going, well, you know, maybe Australia is a one-off, etc. I think the, the maturity, the finishes, look at the nightmare he had here last year um, with the clash with Ray and, and other issues. Uh, you know, it was a really tough one for him. Um, but it, the, the Kawasaki is different from the Yamaha. They're both thin line fours, but they're different bikes. Um, and there are things about this bike that he's still very much in a learning thing. If he said learning once this weekend, he must have said it 20 times. And it's true. He is learning everything, even though his crew chief's very experienced. He's been at Kawasaki a long time. The bike hasn't fundamentally changed that much over the years. But for Alex, it's all new. And ultimately, the rider's the person who gets the most out of it on the track. Uh, and he, front end feel was his big thing at the beginning um, and that compromised his, his entire race Jerez got a lot of corners a few op- uh, past opportunities if you don't have front end confidence tipping in well you're not going to go forward but on by Sunday he, he managed to pass his teammate and, and move on no, very, I, I think that was quite impressive and that, the good thing is he's there as well in the championship fight still yeah, so two a bad weekend um, he, he's still there um, no crashes no no Toys out the pram. He was. It was actually a very mature weekend. Yeah, only two points behind Jonathan Ray in the standings, yeah. which I'm sure Alex would have taken that coming into the season to say after six races you're only going to be two points behind Ray. But uh, it was interesting for me to see how he developed through the weekend because one of the recent tests I was just chatting to a few people within the team. You know, obviously he's got all that crew that's been together for over ten years, and when you talk to Marcel about him, the one thing that his crew chief says is adaptability. It's an ability to learn, an ability to listen, and an ability to put it into practice. And that's something that you know a lot of riders don't have. They've got their riding style, and it doesn't matter what bike they're on, they complain about the same things. If you're able to adapt your style, it really makes a big difference in particularly a production-based championship because a lot of what you get from the bike is predetermined before the season. You've got to make sure you're able to maximize it. And that's where... How many times over the years have we all said Jonathan Ray is the king of adaptability? Whether it's bad conditions, whether it's a change in regulations, whether it's anything else, Jonathan Ray has always found a way to make sure that he's in a position to still give himself the best results. Yes, um, and I think uh, your point about riding style is correct, uh, but I think riders do have a particular style and what the the best ones manage to maintain as much of that as possible to maximise what they know about themselves by adapting the bike to them but the absolutely best riders are the ones that make a 
can change the way they have to approach it on a strategy side. R- riders' riding style, they'll say, oh, I, I've got my riding style and that's it. But adaptability is what wins you world championships. That's it. It's adaptability to, well, I can't ride this way this weekend, so I'll have to refine another way. I'll have to ride like this in the first 10 laps and then like that in the, the second 10 laps. It's not a sea change, but at this level, 1%, half a percent of a change in what you do really counts. And you're absolutely right. The best riders can adapt to the conditions and make a result every weekend, every race, every opportunity they get. You said sea change there, Gordo. Let's talk about changing the air and uh, Scott Redding because we've all been impressed by Scott from the first time he came into the Superbike paddock. He was, you know, he's been a little bit brash. He's 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 fairly talked about uh, what he thinks he can do. He's gone on rants about, uh, you know, just being basically himself again. You know, he's got that confidence that comes from being down and out. At the end of the day, 18 months ago, two years ago, nobody wanted Scott Redding. Yeah. You know, he was finished in the Grand Prix paddock. He had burned a lot of bridges and he was looking at it that, you know what, if someone offered me a powerboat race, if I've got a chance of winning it, I'll go and do that. He ended up in BSB. He swallowed his pride and he said, you know what, I'll go superbike racing. Because five years before that, Scott always had said, you know, I'm not interested in racing a superbike. He was very much a Grand Prix rider, didn't want to take what he would view as being that step down. And suddenly you look at him over the last 18 months, he's been able to go to BSB and win that championship. He did exactly what was expected of him and demanded of him in BSB. You go in there with 200 Grand Prix starts, Grand Prix wins, title contender in Moto2. You've got to get the results. And Scott went in, looked at it and said, you know what? There's going to be out of the full season, there's going to be five or six rounds where I know I'm going to be really strong. There's going to be two or three where I'll go to Oldham Park or Cadwell or up to your old stomping ground at Knock Hill. And I know I'm not going to go fantastic there, but I'll just try and get what you can. He took a very mature approach to BSB, worked out, won the championship. Now he's come to World Superbikes. And suddenly he looks like the Scott Riding that I think everyone expected whenever he was about 15. Yes. Um, oh, okay, we could talk for days about Scott and, and the last couple of years. Basically, for me who've been around a bit, Scott's an old-fashioned world superbike rider who went into MotoGP, got trained to be a MotoGP rider, and I've spoken about this many times in the past. Training is the most important thing for riders with talent. If you get good training and strong competition, you will improve and improve and improve if you've really got it. And I think Scott's really got it, especially in the superbike terms. Going to BSB and winning, well, it would have been very easy to go to BSB and not win because it's such a different beast from MotoGP in every single regard. Uh, but to come here, I think every single person that was was paying any attention to to history of Superbike, etc., knew that Reading should be a force. Not that it would be, because you can never tell. There's people who have come over we expected to do well and did nothing. There's people you come over and you thought, well, it might be okay, and won championships. So Scott's attitude, his self-confidence, backed up by experience, in the factory Ducati team, is absolutely the best breath of fresh air that we've had in this championship for a long time. He is actually a return to the good old bad old days of World Superbike, when the riders were saying what they liked and doing what they liked and whatever. He's actually quite respectful to his rivals. He's not bad-mouthing people, but he is bigging himself up. Well, if you don't believe in yourself, you're never going to get anything in racing anyway. He's made, what did he do in lockdown? He went and lost another few kilos because he's a big lad. He's a big, tall lad, big, broad-shouldered lad. 
and he went and lost a few more kilos. And he himself said the other day, maybe that was part of the difference for the race wins as well, because he was fitter than everybody else. He believes. That's all it is all about is self-belief when you've got that amount of talent and experience and motivation. He's got it in spades. Yeah, for me, what I've been interested in seeing from Scott is for the first time since, like I've known him since I came to Grand Prix race in 2012, he was in Moto2 at that stage. And then he was eventually able to be a title contender the following year, won a lot of races. He went toe-to-toe with Paul for the Moto2 World Championship. But uh, you know, the whole way through his Grand Prix career, it didn't matter what bike he was on, Scott always talked about, it's so difficult whenever you're heavy. It's so difficult whenever you're six foot. It's so difficult when there's this, that, or the other. Suddenly, he's not talking about that. You know, he's not like he's not looking at the disadvantages of being big. Obviously, Superbikes is different compared to MotoGP, and there is less of a penalty. We've got an awful lot more tall riders in World Superbikes than we do in any other class of yeah, racing. Exactly, exactly. But for Scott, he's not looking at limitations now. And I remember whenever he worked with Chris Pike at Mark VDS, Chris always said, there's things that you can do that the other riders can't do because of your size. Yes. You've got to use your advantages where you can and try and limit your disadvantages. Scott now is limiting his disadvantages and taking advantage of what he what he has on his side as well. He's got that extra leverage. He's got that little bit more weight. It can give you some benefits. And now he's really been able to find that. And like, I'm thrilled for him because you want to see guys come into the championship and elevate things. And Scott can do that with this bike. It's like it's pretty clear after this weekend that at Hareth, the Ducati had a big advantage. You could see that with Melandri comes from nine months off a bike to finish inside the top 10. Rinaldi has his best weekend that we've ever seen from him. Chaz Davis was super strong all the way through the weekend as well. And then Scott's there in the top two pretty much every session. So it showed that Ducati was working really well. But Scott had to get all of his ducks in a row and make sure he was able to then get the results. And himself and Giovanni Kruppi, his crew chief, just did a fantastic job all the way through. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, the the Ducatis were clearly at some kind of advantage here, which is odd because the racetrack itself does not lend itself to any particular characteristic of a Ducati. Um, Scott said yesterday the bike was good enough all weekend. Um, they, they don't have a big straight, which helps. Uh, his size, yes, you can use your size bike because you're weighting the bike. Your riders weight the bike a lot through the foot pegs, through the, the, the fuel tank, through their handlebars. And if you've got more weight, you've got more to play with. In pure physics terms, you've got more mass to accelerate out of a corner. But when you're on a Ducati, maybe that matters a little bit less. But we saw Loris Baz, who's an equally tall rider, um, have a fantastic weekend here. It's an interesting point you brought up about superbike riders and size. The very nature of superbikes, the fact that they're already heavier, the fact that the road bikes are not, everything isn't quite as sensitive because ultimately underneath it all is a road bike with recent parts added. Um, it, it's always been much more amenable to riders of all sizes, but uh, you wouldn't imagine that someone, you know, Batista size is maybe too small for a superbike, and maybe, as well as being an asset to him last year, it became a demerit. And Reading, remember, is exactly the same size as, as, as Davies, and maybe an important point that we'll find out as the season progresses is that Ducati are now trammeling down one line of development for taller, heavier riders. And therefore, they're not trying to please two completely opposite styles, sizes of riders, rider positions, geometry. All this stuff changes. If you change the rider, you change the effective geometry of the bike. So races are complicated business. Now Ducati, in my opinion, have had a more simplified set of parameters to meet every weekend because Chaz and Scott 
are far more similar in build. Um, and if they can get the bike to work well, it should work well for a small rider. It should just work better. Just uh, you mentioned Chaz there as well, and we'll talk a little bit about Ducati in general after we finish with riding. But Chaz, in particular, if you look at from this point last year, Laguna onwards, Ducati made a change. From what I understand, they went away from some prototype or racing parts to go back to some standard parts to try and bring the bike back towards what would help for a bigger rider. And from that point onwards, Chaz made a big step forward. All the way through the rest of the season, he was regularly fighting for the podium, looking a little bit more like himself. But then we went to the winter tests and suddenly he made another step forward. We didn't really see that in Phillip Island, but we never really see that from Chaz in Phillip Island. It's never been his best track. And then suddenly there's a five month gap. You come to Hareth, the pressure's on, and he actually had a really good weekend. You know, he could easily have had two podiums, three podiums this weekend. Yeah, it's funny because uh, Chaz is uh, generally plays his cards quite close to his chest. He's not the most effusive rider when you interview him. Uh, it's difficult to get to understand what he's thinking and especially what he's feeling. He always tries to turn it back to the bike and set up and stuff. Um, but he had a very good weekend and he wasn't happy on the bike. I thought yesterday, he, well, my line of questioning partly was over the weekend, was, well, you look, you look a bit more like your normal self, your winning self. And he just didn't agree. He said it was he still has a bit of confidence issues and he's still not quite right and so on. Um, he can be a bit Eorish and, and he's, he's everything, I think it was part of his background and training and he's trying to get everything as, as, as good as it can be. Um, but that was a good weekend and hopefully we'll see Chaz back as the, another member of the, the potential Champions Club very soon and if he keeps going like that, it, it's there. Yeah, it was a bit like that for me as well. I asked Chaz, like, you know, the calendar's out, you've got two rounds in Aragon, you've always gone well here at Areth and he said like, I don't think this has ever been a particularly good track for me and then I was thinking, yeah, one here three times, mate. <laughs> he's, he's, yeah, he's, he's a strange character, Chaz. I like him, but he's, he's absolutely his own man. Uh, he, he, he's got a, a particular approach to racing, which has netted him loads of wins. He's been the biggest competitor to Jonathan, uh, even in the early years of the Panagalia when he was still being ironed out, the previous one. Um, it, the transition to a V4 uh, was a big change for him. Um, and the beginning of last year, even Bautista had the bike that was more like his bike, in theory than Chaz had so I think Chaz is a, it's just his nature we shouldn't worry too much when Chaz says about negative things because then he goes out on race day and does something as, as, as he did at the weekend we've got a few questions in from listeners as well Gordo just about uh, the weekend I More just in trouble now. opened it up to the floor <laughs> considering you were back on the show for the first time in a long time but we have a question from Stiga16 and uh, he's asking Scott to MotoGP on a factory ride what do you think? oh well, there you go. I've had a quid for everybody that's mentioned that to me since the start of the season, especially since the developments have been happening in the Grand Prix paddock. Um, Would you know. have made money over lockdown then, Gordo, as opposed uh, to the rest of us journals? Uh, no, 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 no. You just would have made I, less I, of a loss. I haven't said no enough. No, 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 no. Um, I, I, yeah, is it possible for me? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Superbike riders going to MotoGP is a, a, is a very patchy uh, thing. Uh, but Scott is a MotoGP rider. I think the biggest thing in his favour is that that's where he was born, raised and, and had some success and then had to leave, as you mentioned earlier. Ultimately, I don't see why not. But Ducati has to have a proven potential MotoGP world champion on their books. If they see that as Scott, if he comes here and cleans up, etc. But the, the, the viewpoint of a Superbike World Championship from a MotoGP paddock is not good. Um 
in terms of riders going over there. So we'll see what they think about it if he ends up being the dominant force this year. If he's the dominant force this year, if he can uh, genuinely win the championship before time, if he can do everything that's asked of him and get better and better as the year goes on, why wouldn't they? But I have no idea if that's in Ducati's plans because Ducati make some individualistic choices, let's say, for the rider lineup. Uh, years ago, I put it to uh, Gigi Delinia that the only thing missing from their lineup was was winning riders, and this is a few years ago. A superstar, a potential, as as they were called, alien. You have to just buy an alien and go with that. They eventually did it with Lorenzo. It didn't work at the beginning, but it certainly worked at the end. So, Ducati's a very individualistic company in terms of the way they go about things. And when it works well, it works really well, class leading well. And when it doesn't, it really doesn't. Yeah, for me, I think it's difficult to see where Scott can go on a bike that can win races. I don't, I don't see him wanting to go back to MotoGP just to make up the numbers. He's already done that. He did that from whichever ride you want to look at in the MotoGP paddock. And the unfortunate thing for him is that by the time his contract ends, he's going to be 29. He's going to be at an age where there's always going to be a young Moto2 rider coming through that Ducati could have their heads turned by. You're seeing that now with Jorge Martins being linked with the, the second Pramac seat for the last couple of months. So they're always going to have a younger rider that they can bring on. And Scott's biggest problem is that he's got nearly 200 Grand Prix starts under his belt. He's not an unknown. There's an awful lot of data points the whole way through his career to say what he is as a Grand Prix rider. And what he is as a Grand Prix rider was an unfulfilled talent. And Fair enough, Scott looks very different now than he did two years ago. Two years ago, he was a shell of a man. Suddenly, whenever he was leaving Aprilia, he started to tweet again. He started to, you know, let people see who his character was. And suddenly he realized that actually people really like him. Fans ended up gravitating towards him. He's got that confidence. He's got that swagger back. And I think that all those things are going to mean that he's going to be happier in the Superbike paddock than he would be just making up the numbers in MotoGP. If I'm... GG and I'm making a decision for a MotoGP factory rider for Ducati. I just don't see why you'd go with Scott over some of the younger riders that they can bring. Because at the end of the day, they've got Moto2 world champions. They've got the potential for Martin, a Moto3 world champion. They've got Jack Miller. They've got tons of riders. Like there's six Ducati seats in MotoGP. Five of those guys are on factory contracts. And when you look at any of those riders, there's nothing that says to me that Scott is instantly going to do a better job than them because whenever he was teammates with Petrucci, he didn't do a better job than Petrucci when he was, you know, in the premier class. He never quite lived up to his expectations. And that's a rider that managed to get two podiums. He wasn't a bad MotoGP rider. The only problem is MotoGP is in an exceptional era right now where, you know, front to back, that grid's absolutely stacked. Maybe the one thing that's going to work in Scott's favour, though, is that he's British. Yes. And there's not an awful lot of young Brits coming yes. through. That's the, the biggest thing he's got in his favour is a nationality card, um, which would be nice if it was uh, for English-speaking riders to, to get that in a very Latin-dominated uh, MotoGP now. Uh, the reason for that, we could talk all day again about that subject, but ultimately MotoGP, from all the talent cups they do to now, is, is basically a rider factory. They are throwing out a big wide net catching all the little fish and young guys that have got any talent. They're getting a chance in MotoGP. If they make it, then they get the opportunities. If they don't, well, there's another guy coming along a year after. There's another 15-year-old that everybody's raving about 
they, they will catch all the young emerging talent and as you say Scott's got a few demerit marks purely because of his age purely because of his previous GP experience um, I think people are applying logic to something that isn't always logical that well if you do if you win BSB and then you win World Superbike then oh great you obviously get a chance at MotoGP well if he was a young rider coming through yeah if it was uh, Ben Spees coming from America with all that success and then coming to World Superbike and winning the whole championship on a Yamaha which probably wasn't the best bike at that time in year one against some pretty legendary names obviously give him a chance in MotoGP and see how he does it's just different for Scott it's a different set of circumstances and I personally think that Scott could thrive for, from now till the end of his career in this paddock where if people have got any sense they'll start loosening up again and go back to the way things were and some very interesting I'll, I'll keep this short with very interesting conversations with a few top people this weekend who are keep going on about the requirement to make a separation between Superbike and MotoGP and for the last few years quite a few years actually we've been trying to get Superbike to become mini MotoGP that is a failing strategy it will fail because it's not MotoGP we have to be a rougher readier more lippy more extreme animal Leave the super sophistication, uh, whether it's riding style or professional, so-called professional approach and image and so on, to the Grand Prix class. The Grand Prix class, remember what that stands for. The big prize, that's it. We need to be back to the kind of street kid mentality that made World Superbike in the first place. Why did people fall in love with it? Because we're on the production bikes? Sure, okay. But we had Formula One before that. We had other forms of production racing. What people loved about World Superbike was genuine rivalries, people getting in each other's faces, real factory battles going on, uh, but characters. And someone like Scott Redding is a true character who's not scared to say the things. A lot of riders in this paddock are exactly the same, but when you put them in front of a, a camera, it's as if they've been told, calm down, calm down. You get the best stuff from them when the camera's off or the microphone's off. Then they become themselves and... They, they no longer become some corporate animal. Yeah, riders never change. You know, when you look back at the golden eras of riders that everyone talks about, where you can look at Barry Sheen, you can look at Schwantz, you can look at any of these guys, and the, the riders today are the exact same. They, they'll never change because they're built the same way. But because of contracts, because of different yes. things, whenever there's a microphone put in front of them. External influences on them. Yeah. Media training. Media training. Speaking as a member of the media, the last thing I want are riders to be media trained. Seriously. It just stops them being themselves. What's the point of trying to build someone's character and Twitter personality when all you're doing is suppressing their own personality and their own needle and grudges and stuff? This is what people are interested in. It's the, the number one rule in sports promotion. Yeah, and uh, I remember like years ago when he was with uh, Mark VDS in Moto2, Scott was banned from social media because they didn't want his character to come out. They didn't want that side because in the Grand Prix paddock, it was viewed as being a little bit unprofessional. It was a little bit too edgy. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, what's made Scott popular? It's the fact that he has all that. What's been the, I've actually written a column about this recently. What's been the most memorable set of uh, uh, circumstances and races that we've had over the last few years? And as well as some amazing race performances, it's the fallout between Chaz and Jonathan Assen and the, the Super Bowl incident when they got in each other's faces in the Park Fermi. Um, 
it, it's the it's the incidents and accidents. We were at Hareth here and what happened at Hareth last year. Jonathan tried to get past Alex and, and Alex fell off and it was it was the talk of the town. It was maybe unpleasant for the people involved, but it was the fans pay more attention when something like that happens. Uh, race action is great. We need more competitive race action all the time and we seem to be getting that this year. That's a big important element. But you need to have that that kind of uh, competitive attitude spilling out into the media to get people interested again. As there is no point us trying to follow MotoGP's model in almost any regard, I think, because MotoGP has become such a big success and um, such a global reach. It's We can't chase that. We have to go in a different direction. And the good news is that some people at the top understand that. How do they do it? If they do it the right way, great. It's also possible they do it the wrong way. But we don't want to be too polished here. That's my opinion based on over two decades of, of seeing all those riders coming through. So, Gordon, we've got a question from Elias Kirk and uh, we've also got one from Xenoland101 just about the Ducati V4R. And uh, Elias puts it well by saying there was great racing in all three races, but he's curious to see how things will evolve over the upcoming rounds. He's a Ducati fan, but he hopes they aren't as dominant as they were at the beginning of last year. And then from Xenoland 101, he's talking in terms of a little bit tongue-in-cheek about the Ducati MotoGP bike in World SBK. So, Gordo, what's your thoughts on the V4R? Uh, well, it was designed to be on another level. It's a homologation special as a road bike because that's what Ducati do. They've always done it. Uh, they just happen to have done it in the same engine format as everybody else has been doing, but they chose a V4, which is generally acknowledged as the best platform for racing and you can't have a five anyway. Um, I think it was designed to be. They've, they've pulled it back in terms of revs a little bit, um, but it was designed to be a winner in World Superbike uh, and any other form of racing that it, when it took part in. And after a few teething problems, that's what happened. Um, it doesn't mean you're always going to win on a Ducati, but the Ducati is a, a fantastic race machine, a race-orientated machine. The Kawasaki is a is a is still a lot of road bike with a, a lot of factory input from a very small factory in Japan. They're nowhere near, not even close to Honda's efforts. Um, in theory, the Hondas uh, they built a bike that's going to rev really fast and and do all the things it needs to do as a race bike. But ultimately, um, uh, ultimately the 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 Ducati is partly MotoGP, yeah, it's partly MotoGP, but it's also not. Um, and it has to be a road bike. The, the chassis of the thing has to be built to handle potholes and everything else. So it's not, uh, it can't be a MotoGP bike. They're designed to go go fast around the racetrack. Um, there's always compromises, but they took it to the edge, exactly like Delinia did with Aprilia, and they won world championships and a million races on the back of that. So, yeah, it, it's the Ducati... A better bike than than the other ones? On paper, yes. But it was the same last year. And it was for a while and then wasn't. So I think the Ducati, the D stands for double-edged, as in double-edged sword. Because when you get it right, I think it's really good. And when you don't get it right, I think it's easy to not get it right and not be there. Obviously this weekend, they, they did a lot of things right. And maybe the heat. The heat as well. Maybe it just handles the tyres better. Yeah, the double-edged sword indeed, Gordo. We had that bit of a double-edged sword from Yamaha this weekend. Not for the first time in recent weeks. Technical issues for Yamaha yeah. here in Hareth. But again, there was enough to show from Top Rack in particular just to show how good they could be this year. 
Yes, uh, the Yamaha is obviously a very capable bike. Uh, they've got a new bike this year. They, they, they changed the spec a little bit. Uh, maybe only if you were racing it or pulling it apart every weekend, you would notice the changes. But they made some subtle changes to get the bike to be a better race bike. Um, but yeah, it was quite noticeable. Baz had a problem, uh, Toprak had a problem, Mikey had a problem. Uh, that's unusual. It's very hot. What was Baz's problem? Baz, uh, right, when he did his uh, Super Bowl thing, he did his first FP1. Yeah. Remember, he, he ended up running, uh, he, he stopped right after, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, early in the weekend. So there's, there's been a few issues. Uh, they won't say, we don't know why, but it was quite noticeable. The extreme heat can catch anybody out, but maybe there is a, a thing they need to get fixed before they, they move on too far. Um, the Yamaha is a tricky one because it's obviously very potent and capable. Um, but when you look at the the, if Mikey doesn't get the bike right, he doesn't seem to have good races. When he gets the bike right, he can be right in amongst it. Top rack, I think there's also the top rack element whereby he's just, I think whatever you put underneath him, he'll just find a way of riding it and ride around any problems. I think he's a much more intuitive rider than most. Maybe one day that'll be a limit, but it doesn't look very limited to me. If he didn't have the, the issues he had in Australia and here, he'd be right there with the, the top runners. Yeah, I think um, Mikey's always been that peaks and troughs. And whenever he's on, he's always able to win races. Whenever he's off, he's usually in that fifth, sixth position. Or when you give him a bike that can win races, then he'll, he'll, he'll yeah. win races or be on the podium. I think it's maybe a bit of both things. But when he won the championships, he did in his way through the ranks here. He was always on a bike that was capable of doing it and he virtually always did do it. So I think if you give him the ideal bike every weekend, you'll get podiums every single weekend. So it, it might, it's been an interesting thing to find out and we might only find out at season end how much is the bike and how much is the ride. Yeah, I have to say, I, I do always think that uh, over the last few years, Yamaha has just always found a way to have arguably the best all-round rider lineup. Over the last few years, Lowe's and Vandermark, two riders that were always able to push each other really well. Now you've got Vandermark and Top Rack and they're going to push each other too. But it was interesting for me this weekend because we saw, again, just the strengths of Top Rack at different times. You'd ride on boards with Scott Redding down the straights, the Ducati's pulling out of the slipstream. It looks like a comfortable move and Top Rack just breaks so much deeper, so much harder than everyone else. Scott was a bit annoyed about it as well after the Super Bowl race, which I thought was a little bit rich considering his move on Johnny in race one. Yeah, but that's good. It's good. Um, it's, I think the fight between those two, uh, if you're going to pass top right, you're going to have to mean it. Um, but everybody, Philip Otto in Supersport said, I think that the passes are a bit different in Superbike from OG. One of the things he's really noticed in his transition, and he's made a good transition already, uh, is that the passes, he said, here it seems to be that block passes and stuff are, it's kind of okay. And I think here people also understand that the, the the nature of the bike's everything else. You can't be as precise in a pass. Sometimes you've got to put in a pass and just hope that there's nothing going to happen. It's not recklessness. That's a different thing. Uh, dirty riding is dirty riding. It's not acceptable. But yeah, it's, that's the way people get by here is is to have to take a bit of a lunge. It's also partly because the level people are riding at and the intensity people are riding at. When someone in front of you is online, not making mistakes and going 99.999%, you have to go 100.001%. And that generally involves moving the other guy a bit. But the fans love it. it. As long as it's not dirty, I'm all for it. It, it causes incidents and uh, so on. But Top Rack and Scott, that is, yeah, you'd pay for that boxing match, wouldn't you? Yeah, 
down into down into turn one in particular was really interesting because he had uh, Scott trying to get down the inside, use the power of the Ducati, make his break move. He feels he's got the move done, and then suddenly Toprak swoops around the outside, yeah. somehow manages to find a way to get that Yamaha to work. And I'll I tell you what, like you just can't not be impressed by Toprak, but you also have to be very impressed by just the impact that he's had with Phil Marin because since they started working together, Toprak's just a completely different beast. Yes, and I mean, you couldn't imagine two more different people than, than Phil and Toprak, uh, but together they're obviously making the thing sing. Um, it, it's uh, it's interesting being inside the paddock and seeing the names that aren't on the bikes running around and how people can develop their, their careers and so on in here. Um, and, and, and he's one of those guys. He's been around, got a lot of experience, and now he's got a rider that's operated at the top level. He's in a factory team. He's in a good position, and the the, the the symbiosis of those two guys is obviously very, uh, it's very impressive to see. It's all in the background, and maybe me, only me and you, really get to see it because we're here. Um, not even allowed in the garages anymore because of all the the COVID problems we're having, which was another weird element of this weekend. But it was very, uh, it's it's very noticeable to see how people can progress here still. If you're the right person in the right job, you can move on in this championship. Yeah, that's what we've definitely seen over the last few years. We've got a question as well from Matthew. It's either Matthew Cadle or Matthew Nadel. Matt, I'm going to apologise in advance for whichever one of them was incorrect. But uh, Matthew's asking us, does World SBK have engine limits like they do in MotoGP? And is Yamaha going to have problems in World SBK if the bikes have issues like what we saw for Vandermark? Well, there are engine limits. Uh, basically, the rules are that you uh, it's it's you get half the number of race uh, engines for the, the number of rounds, uh, number of races rounded up uh, so however long the season actually ends up being it'll be half the number of engines will Yamaha have a problem well only Yamaha no uh, we haven't se- I haven't seen a engine uh, allocation sheet yet maybe that's one of the things we won't see but we got from the FIM you can see how many engines people had used but even if you bring engines and don't use them if you say you've got three engines ready and then you, your first engine goes and you realise there might be a problem in all of them even if you've presented them, as long as you've not turned a wheel on them, we've done one lap, I think it is, on those those engines, you can take them away as long as you haven't used them and bring another spec. It's very complicated, the, the overall rules. But yes, you will they have a problem? I don't know. The, the, because they won't, and they won't tell me. When we see how many they've used, then the potential is there for a problem. Yeah, for you, anybody. For anybody who has a problem with engines. Usually after the third round is whenever we get the engine list sent out. So yeah, yeah. we should be able to see that relatively soon in World SBK. Just uh, we talked about the good things this weekend. We talked about Kawasaki, Ducati and Yamaha. Um, it wasn't all good for everyone, though, Gordo. When you look further down the field, Honda and BMW, big struggles. And well, what's your takeaway from both of those teams? Uh, I think at the beginning of the weekend, it could have been good for, I mean, people were genuinely talking about if Bautista, you know, with his experience, can, can get a bike that goes around the, the, the well enough, then he could get a slightly surprised result. BMW looked strong with Tom, uh, and obviously got on to uh, top three at times. Um, but yeah, whether it was a heat issue, uh, the, the Honda is still incredibly young uh, and very conventional. I think if they had done a Ducati and brought a V4 and had some MotoGP philosophies, if you like, on setup to kind of follow, they might be further on. But they are—they got rid of all their expertise in the in the four cylinders 
that that was in the paddock before, whether it was the Tinkata guys before them or the Honda people from last year, and brought in a whole new bunch of people who don't have experience of superbike. I think that was a difficult thing to do. It might actually end up being the best thing to do, but time will tell. But right now, no. Uh, BMW, yeah, I expected a bit more from BMW, and obviously Laverty was a, um, you know, had some had some problems getting around the track. Um, I, I I was a little bit disappointed in the fact that no one showed, but the, but maybe they also need more riders. Maybe they just need a, a satellite team to help with some aspects of development. Remember, because you're on limited engines and testing now, you can use your satellite team to to prove a few things in testing and stop your two main guys doing it. That I think they should have... I was expecting more from both of those efforts this weekend and we didn't get it, but it was a very weird weekend with all the heat. Um, it, it was and it, it was a surprise to me that they, they didn't do more in races because they shone a bit in practice. Yeah, it surprised me as well because at the Catalan test in the race simulations that we saw... Laverty in particular was actually very strong, very consistent pace. His, his, his speed wasn't great. He was still you know, further off than he would have wanted. But in terms of consistency, he was really on the, on the button. And that's where it surprised me that we never really saw that from him during the races. Obviously, he had a tyre problem in race one. He then on the opening lap of race two, hits a false neutral, runs off the track and uh, ended up retiring from the race. But we never really saw that big step. And that's where Portimao now becomes incredibly important for Laverty in particular because yes. at the end of the day everyone in the paddock knows what you're going to get from Tom Sykes you're going to get pole positions you're going to get front rows you're going to get great single lap performances and then in the races he's going to fall down the order a little bit there's one seat left at BMW for next year Tom is guaranteed effectively to give you positive PR by being able to say over a single lap the BMW is a fantastic bike Eugene on the other hand He's never been a great qualifier. He's always been methodical during a race and been able to get good performances over the course of a full 35-minute race. But he really needs to get that result in Portimao to warrant having an opportunity to stay with the team. Yeah, but in a short season now, and every race is going to count double, whether that's for the championship fight or whether it's for people looking at getting a signing for next year. Um, there will be one space left. My understanding is it should be one of those two guys that gets offered the ride. Um it's it's uh, there's been a few changes for Eugene. He's had to to change and move on. Uh, he's ridden different bikes. He's been in different classes. Uh, but yeah, there has to be a step change in in his performance to allow him to be the rider we know he can be. And the results is, I would imagine it's all still there. But they have to him and BMW and all their partners have to turn that into results. And as you say, the thing you usually got with Eugene was the best result possible. He was one of those riders who would give you the best result possible on track. Um, Tom, yes, he can be up and down. If you give him the perfect bite and you give him for 20 laps, watch him go. That's how you become a world champion as he was quite a few years ago now. Um, the, it's, it's an interesting dynamic there because in theory they've got two potential champion riders. They've got BMW. You can't imagine they're short of a quid getting that bike to work they've obviously put a lot of effort and development into it but right now it seems that they are less than the sum of their parts the sum of their parts looks great on paper and they've obviously got some pace there difficult last year with the engine development and the limits that are put in this championship it's an irony is that sometimes whole manufacturers can't be competitive here just because of the limits they've put on to allow more manufacturers to come in and be more competitive it, there's always a compromise to, to there's always a payoff as it were 
But they, yeah, that, I was disappointed in, in, in what they did at this round. Um, I hope they'll come good. Portimao could be the perfect place because it's such a weird place uh, that, that Eugene obviously loves. Yeah, the good thing for World SBK at the moment is you have a bad weekend, there's only a few days until you get to go back out and track again, turn things around. You have a good weekend, there's only a few days to go out yeah. and reassert that you are the man to beat. And that's what's, that's what's great right now. And uh, Gordo, it's been great to have you back on the show. We'll obviously do a show in Portimao as well. It's lucky that we're able to record this on the Monday. So we've been able to talk about what we've seen over the course of the race weekend. Unfortunately, next week, we're going to be back to having to record on the Saturday just because of travel to uh, to get back home but uh, it, it's been a, a really fun week of racing to be able to get back and what I was happiest with was we were able to build on what happened in Phillip Island because I remember going into the MotoGP paddock the week afterwards was the Qatar Grand Prix and everyone wanted to talk about superbikes they, they were all swept on by what we saw in Phillip Island and we were all excited to get going in Qatar and prove to everyone that this year was going to be a bit special and I tell you what race one this weekend was the best thing that could have happened because there were seven riders in the lead group. There was interesting talking points all the way through. And we were really able to build on what happened in round one. And I can't wait for round three. Oh, I mean, it's been great. That was the big worry was that Phillip Island always uh, has good races or usually has good races um, because of the, everybody's having to run at a slower pace for longer. And therefore, they stay in a group for longer. Uh, but yeah, Phillip Island this year, there was just something a bit special. I think it was the amount of riders that could have done it, the different manufacturers. Um, we need that back again. Uh, it hasn't always been the case. It used to be a Ducati Championship, this, at least in two whole eras of its life. But everybody's, you look at everybody's teams and, and you think, yeah, no, that's good. And they actually showed it in Phillip Island and quite a few of them showed it here. As long as we get the other manufacturers to to reach the level of the, the three that are really cutting it at the minute or we're cutting it here, we'll be fine. But even with those three manufacturers, we saw someone create Rinaldi. Who, I'd never never have uh, assumed that, that Rinaldi would have done uh, what he was going to do. No way. And look at the weekend he had. Great. Even if that's their best performance of the year, it's already happened. So it could be anybody else. It could be anybody else through the rest of the year. That is exciting. I can't wait. Yeah, great stuff, Gordo. And uh, thanks for joining us on the show. And thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, if you want to get in contact with us, you can tweet us at Paddock Pass Pod. And uh, for the Superbike shows, myself and Gordo will certainly do our best to be able to answer any questions that you have. You can also follow us on Spotify, Apple, po- Apple iTunes Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts and uh, be sure to leave a review because it certainly helps everyone to find the show. You can also support us on the Patreon page. So patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. And uh, for up to $10 a month, it really does make a big impact in what we're able to offer from the show. So until the next time on the Paddock Pass podcast, for myself, Steve English, from Gordon Ritchie, we're just excited to get on the road to Portugal. Cheers.